We're going to be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 26 and just the first four verses. Hear the word of God. Now the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is David not hiding in the hill of Hakilah opposite Jeshimon? Then Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph, having 3,000 chosen men of Israel with him to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped in the hill of Hakilah, which is opposite Jeshimon by the road. But David stayed in the wilderness, and he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness. David therefore sent out spies and understood that Saul had indeed come. Father God, we thank you for every portion of your word. We thank you for the instructions that we have heard concerning our families in the last weeks, and we look now at uh, the uh, relationship that we have to culture. We pray that you would open the eyes of our understanding, uh, keep us from error, and enable us to be pleasing in your sight in all of the responses that we give to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Now, I was brought up by my parents to never call anyone an idiot. And uh, you can see by the title of the sermon that I'm a little bit deviating from that. And the reason for it is um, an essay that I uh, read by one of my favorite economists, uh, Thomas Sowell. And by the way, he's a black economist in America. If you're not familiar with his work, you absolutely need to start reading some of his stuff. He's just amazing. Uh, His book, Basic Economics... Uh, Every young person, I think, really needs to read that. And he's, I should say, not used to calling people names either. He's such a brilliant guy, he doesn't have to. (laughs) He just marshals the arguments, and they're out there. Uh, But there's a context here. Uh, We're not really calling names. There's a context, and he'll explain what that means. And I want to read the beginning of his uh, essay. He said, Lenin is supposed to have referred to blind defenders and apologists for the Soviet Union in the Western democracies as useful idiots. Yet even Lenin might have been surprised at how far these useful idiots would carry their partisanship in later years, including our own times. Stalin's man-made famine in the Soviet Union during the 1930s killed more millions of people than Hitler killed in the Holocaust, and Mao's Man-made famine in China killed more millions than died in the USSR. Yet we not only hear little or nothing about either of these staggering catastrophes in the communist world today, very little was said about them in the Western democracies while they were going on. Indeed, many useful idiots denied that there were famines in the Soviet Union or in communist China. The most famous of these was the New York Times Moscow correspondent Walter Durante, who won a Pulitzer Prize for telling people what they wanted to hear rather than what was actually happening. Durante assured his readers that, quote, there is no famine or actual starvation, nor is there likely to be, unquote. Moreover, he blamed reports to the contrary on rumor factories with anti-Soviet bias. It was decades later before the first serious scholarly study of that famine was written by Robert Conquest of the Hoover Institution, always identified in politically correct circles as right-wing. Yet, when the Soviets' own statistics on the deaths during the famine were finally released under Mikhail Gorbachev, they showed that the actual deaths exceeded even the millions estimated by Dr. Conquest. 
And Thomas Sowell goes on to show in the article that America is suffering because we have so many useful idiots who are blind to a party, to a person, to an ideology, or to a movement, and it doesn't matter how many evils are perpetrated by that person or party or in the name of an ideology or movement, they continue to support uh, these people. And, of course, others have written on this naivete as well. In fact, this is such a well-known phrase, and people can see the phenomenon so clearly that you'll find scholars on the left and scholars on the right, both of whom call the blind supporters of the opposite side the useful idiots, right? So that's where the title comes from. And if you look at verse 1, the Ziphites were the useful idiots of Saul. He used them as his pawns. They unwittingly supported tyranny uh, when they probably were thinking that they were defending liberty. And archaeology shows that the Ziphites were not only passionate in their support of the king, but that they were patriots who were wanting to defend the liberty of their country from attacks. Verse 26 uh, then reintroduces us to these very, very interesting people. It says, Now the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is David not hiding in the hill of Hakilah, opposite Jeshimon? Back in chapter 23, we looked in depth at who these Ziphites were. They were descendants of one of the most famous warriors of the past, Caleb, who is a hero of mine. And so they have a wonderful uh, heritage, and they too were warriors who were proud of their country and proud of their history. They were willing to risk their lives for what they thought was liberty. Now, later on, once they get their heads screwed on straight, they change sides and they realize, we need to support David. But at this point in their lives, they actually considered David to be part uh, of the problem. Their understanding of who the true enemy was was truncated. As far as they were concerned, the Philistines were the, 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 the main enemy, and anybody who was not getting on board with Saul's solution to this problem was part of the problem uh, themselves. And uh, so here, uh, when David begins uh, criticizing, or he's been doing it for quite some time, the unconstitutional actions of King Saul, they're offended. I have one, uh, maybe two, I don't remember now, commentaries who say, well, maybe they're offended because David has just married Abigail and inherited a huge pile of uh, wealth from uh, Nabal's property, and Nabal's one of these Ziphites' kinsmen, which indeed he was. But that doesn't really explain why they were just as offended with David back in chapter 23. I think the evidence leads in a different direction. Uh, I, I think the evidence shows that they thought that David was jeopardizing the safety of Israel from the attacks of the Philistines. They're probably thinking, hey, this is not a time for us to be divided. Sure, King Saul has done some bad things in the past, but we need to be united as a nation if we're going to be able to defend our nation's uh, existence, if we're going to survive. And this is basically the rhetoric that has been used today to defend the Patriot Act and the National Defense uh, Authorization Act, which some people call the Indefinite Detention uh, Act, the constant danger of war was used by Saul in these chapters to keep these people, these Ziphites, loyal to his cause. Uh, we also saw that the Ziphites were from the same tribe that David came from, which makes it all the more unusual that they would side with, with uh, Saul uh, over against 
uh, David. In fact, we saw that Nabal was another Calebite, okay? And he marginalized David and tried to make him out to be a nobody, which we already saw. That's astonishing because David was a military hero that everybody respected as long as he was fighting under Saul's banner. But once Saul started demonizing him, everything changed. Now back to the patriotism and the loyalty. What's confusing is that David was a patriot and he was loyal as well. The issue is not patriotism and loyalty. The issue is blind patriotism. Blind loyalty. And blind patriotism and blind loyalty uh, is the stuff that emboldens tyrants. Almost every empire that has been destroyed within, within has a short list of things that have contributed to their downfall. And there's many scholars have looked at these. What are these things that have contributed to the downfall? Two uh, on that list are moral corruption within and Too many useful idiots who just blindly support whatever the tyrant wants to do. They're loyal to their country, okay? And so that's the first half of verse 1. But the second half of that verse shows that they had a misplaced idea of where the true danger lay. They saw David as the true danger. And again, in light of David's heroism and loyalty to Saul, this is remarkable. Uh, In reality, David upheld the Constitution, It's not David who's the danger. It's Saul who is the danger to the country. David was even endorsed by Saul's son, Jonathan. David's moral character was squeaky clean. Now, we saw last week it was thanks to Abigail, but it was still at this point squeaky clean. Now, in contrast, Saul had proved himself to be the true enemy of the Constitution who really needed to be impeached for treason. Yes, he was capable of fighting the the Philistine terrorists, and nobody's questioning his military prowess, But let me remind you of some of the things that God has already given a scathing denunciation of that existed in Saul's life. Saul had become a centralist in his later years. He didn't start off that way, but he ended up that way. He had his own National Defense Authorization Act in chapter 22 where he detained 85 pastors without a warrant and he executed those 85 pastors without any court trial. Now, he justified what he was doing by saying that he suspected that they had helped David, who was suspected of being an enemy of the state. Now, they denied that they had helped David. There was no court trial for them. There was no court trial for David. But just on the mere suspicion that you're helping a suspected terrorist back then would get you into deep trouble. Let me list some of the other issues that parallel modern America. We've seen that he engaged in eminent domain, cronyism, uh, not quite as bad as uh, modern bailouts, but it was cronyism nonetheless. A 10% tax, which chapter 8 says that's just awful, just awful. A forest community service, now it's been proposed by our current administration, it's not been followed through on. Overstepping jurisdictional limits, failing to submit to God's law, putting soldiers unnecessarily in harm's way, enriching himself from political decisions, megalomania, paranoia, favoritism on taxes, state security trumping individual rights, elevating people like Doeg, who hated the Constitution, into high positions, spying on citizens, interpreting disagreement as lack of patriotism. Okay, that's the list from Saul's life, and it looks like modern America has been for quite some time. It's not just under the current uh, administration. 
And when you have any candidate who speaks out against those kinds of evils, they are marginalized by the Ziphite media, just like David was being marginalized by the Calebites and by others who, 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 who t- tried to downplay his patriotism. So I think those Ziphites parallel a lot of what is going on in America. Now, the useful idiots on the right may not blindly support Obama. They don't. And the useful idiots on the left uh, did not blindly support Bush when he was office. They don't. But here's the point. Both sides have been completely blind to the true root issues that are destroying America. We have thrown off uh, the laws of God. Uh, We have uh, 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 trashed the Constitution. Uh, We have... um, Uh, had an economy that's heading toward disaster because of government interference. And yet we're loyal to one candidate or another who is actually a part of the problem. They're a part of the problem. And why? Well, many times it's because these candidates have thrown a few bones to us. They'll say, okay, you vote for me, and I will make sure that we get two conservative uh, candidates uh, put onto the Supreme Court. Or you vote for me and I'll be tough on Iran or I'll be tough on terrorism. And, uh, and so we just cover for them and uh, vote for them and try to make them look better than they really are. And that's the most troubling thing uh, for me. Uh, and when we do that, we become useful idiots of the one world federalists. Now, I have to, a little confession to make that when I was younger, I had a tendency to this blind loyalty to a party or to a person and just whitewashing and ignoring the bad things that were with my candidate. And no more, that's not patriotism. Uh, That is not in the best interests of the country. And so what I want to do is I want to do everything I can to reestablish God's law in America and uh, to bring back the Constitution. We need constitutionalism in this nation to bring back true economics, to radically diminish the size of the country. And so I would just encourage you, brothers and sisters, to not be Ziphites who are blindly loyal, uh, whether in the church or elsewhere, blindly loyal to a person, a party, an ideology, or a movement, but to evaluate everything. Be Bereans. Evaluate everything uh, by the Word of God. Now, um, one of the things here that we're seeing under point uh, three is uh, when you've got Saul's in government, They just love Ziphites. They laugh because they know they've got you in their pocket. They know you'll continue to support them no matter how many promises that they break. And that's point number three. We can trust the government to break its promises when we treat the government as our Savior. And way back in chapter 8, God had prophesied that Saul was going to bring about a messianic government through the description. He didn't call it a messianic government, but you can see from the description that that's the case. Now, who did God blame back then? He blamed the people, interestingly. You see, governments tend to change and morph into the expectations and the demands of its citizens. So if the citizens demand a utopia, you know, we want the government fixing this and that and every other problem, more and more what's going to happen is you're going to have your freedoms eroded. If people constantly say to every irritation that comes along, ah, there ought to be a law against that, well, we're going to get laws against that. We're going to have a, a bureaucratically regulated country. And so we deserve us all when we expect the state to be a messiah. Anyway, one of the areas of suffering that uh, was mentioned in chapter 8 
is that Saul would grow to be a person that they could no longer trust anymore. This was a prophecy in chapter 8 of Saul. And certainly what Saul was doing in verse 2 lacked integrity. It says, Then Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph, having 3,000 chosen men of Israel with him to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. His stated goal was to catch David, something that he had promised he would not do in chapter 24. Now, of course, that's not the first time he's broken his promises. Uh, He had lacked integrity. He was a politician like Vladimir Lenin. His stated goal was that promises are like pie crusts. They're meant to be broken. At least that's what people impute to Lenin. (laughs) Uh, The quote there, Lenin used promises to manipulate uh, the people. And so let me trace a handful of the key broken promises in 1 Samuel. In chapter 13, Saul lost God's favor because he broke his word to Samuel. And what did God do? God rejected him as being qualified for being a king. That's how importantly integrity is to God. Integrity is critically important. So Saul overreacts. In the next chapter, he tries to prove that he's a man of his word, and the way he does it is he's about to kill his son Jonathan, which is just preposterous. What he did is he made a rash vow that he would kill anybody who ate that day until the Philistines were, were conquered, which is a stupid vow to start with. But he made his vow, and he said, okay, once he finds out that Jonathan had eaten some honey that day, you will surely die. And so he's got this rash vow. He wants to prove that he's a man of his word, but it's not flowing from within. Almost immediately in chapter 15, Saul breaks his solemn promise by sparing King Agag and keeping some of the sheep and oxen. And of course, we've already preached on the numerous ways in which he's broken his word to David and he broke his solemn covenant that he made with Jonathan to never raise his hand uh, against David. But you know what? The people should not have been surprised at all. If Saul was willing to break God's, uh, Israel's constitution in the name of security, why in the world would people trust him on anything else? It, it seems obvious. And we've been having the same problem in America since at least President Wilson, in my books actually from quite a bit earlier, but it was bald-faced lies that have gotten us into a number of wars. We've had congressmen, senators, judges, presidents who have willfully ignored the original intent of the Constitution, which is right there in the Federalist Papers. We know exactly what they intended by the Constitution, despite the fact they have sworn to uphold and defend it, so help me God, and yet we sheeple trust them to keep their campaign promises? I mean, it's just irrational. We citizens are the useful idiots who are putting men and women into power who have been raping and pillaging the country through the Federal Reserve System, through war, nation-building, through inflation, bribes, graft, and influence. We are the Ziphites who trust our souls to come through for us on any number of promises that they make. And I think it's time that we started supporting the unelectable Davids. Because at least we can stand before God's judgment throne and say, Lord, I voted for the right man. It's up to you as to the results. I'm not going to even look at the results. I'm going to vote for the one that you want in office. We can stand before God. Otherwise, we will be judged voting for the lesser of two evils if it truly is evil that these people are promoting. If God says they're not qualified to be in state, why in the world would we vote out of fear that we're going to get a worse person if we don't get that? Let's go for what God calls for. 
But this requires, and that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to agree with who I think it should be in office, right? But you guys have got to be thinking through that. I'm not going to tell you who to vote for. Well, maybe once I'm out of the pulpit, I will. <laughs> but um, not in the pulpit. But this requires initiative, and it requires a long-term vision. This is point number four. You cannot build a godly party overnight unless God supernaturally intervenes. He can do that, but that's not God's normal process. If American Christians will have a long-term vision, they will work for building a godly power. I think it can be achieved, but it cannot be achieved with the methodology that we have been using. And there are two literary devices that hint at this here. David Sumura points out in his commentary on 1 Samuel that the deliberate alternation of names being reversed in the second half of verse 3 shows that David is not just responding. Okay, David is just as much of an initiator of action as Saul was. The Hebrew alternation in the first half is Saul, David, Saul, David, Saul. And in the second half, it's David, Saul, David, Saul, David, Saul, David, Saul. And then there's the distinction between verse 2, where it says Saul arose and went, and verse 5, where David arose and came. Now, you would expect it to say David arose and went. But the Hebrew grammar is very interesting. David arose and came. And what's going on here, it's, a, it's indicating David is no longer f- simply fleeing. He is no longer simply reacting to Saul. David is boldly going to confront Saul's tyranny. And, of course, this is the wonderful story of the rest of the chapter. But verses 3 through 5 prepare us to anticipate this initiative of freedom on the part of David. And let me read those for you. And Saul encamped in the hill of Hakilah, which is opposite Jephimon by the road. But David stayed in the wilderness, and he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness. David therefore sent out spies and understood that Saul had indeed come. So David arose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw there the place where Saul lay, and Abner the son of Ner, the commander of the army, uh, etc. Now, in the search for liberty, there's always going to be this interchange between government and the citizens. Governments almost always initiate. They also respond, but they almost always are initiators. Otherwise, they wouldn't be in government in the first place. Whereas citizens don't always initiate and don't always even respond. Many times they are very, very passive, which means that the changes in government are not usually going to come for the better from government. Sometimes you'll get a good person in there and it'll be top-down change. But almost always the difference that is made depends upon whether or not the citizens are passive or whether they are activist initiators. Now, I could illustrate this in a number of places. Uh, you can definitely see it under the, under the judges. But even in the first few years of Saul's reign, the people were used to being very involved. Uh, they were active in protesting the tyranny of the judges Joel and Abijah in chapter 8, and they successfully got them impeached. They were involved in resisting Saul's tyranny in chapter 14. Remember I just said that Saul was going to kill Jonathan? Let me read to you what the people did in verse 45. But the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die, who has accomplished this great deliverance in Israel? Certainly not. As the Lord lives, not one hair of his head shall fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. 
So the people rescued Jonathan, and he did not die. Now, that was an incredibly bold move on the part of the people, but this is the kind of initiative, citizen initiative, that restores liberty. It's called interposition. But over time, Saul had learned how to use money to change the situation. And we already saw the redistribution of wealth, and he began to accumulate more power, bantering the threat of Philistine. There are a number of different ways in which he brought the people to the place where they become passive and fearful of doing anything and saying anything. And when people become passive and fearful, there is no stopping of tyranny. Now, we've already mentioned activism by itself is not enough because the Ziphites were active, but uh, they were just um, uh, cheap labor for Saul. Now, the last thing that I see in these verses is that liberty comes from constant vigilance and awareness of what is happening. Verse 4, David therefore sent out spies and understood that Saul had indeed come. Now, the rest of the chapter shows the brilliant um, actions that he took, but this verse shows that David was trying to make his decisions based on constant vigilance and awareness of what was happening. So Saul had his spies, David had his own spies. In our own day, if it had not been for the information that we constantly receive from organizations like HSLDA, we would not have nearly the liberties that we're currently enjoying in Nebraska in homeschooling. Okay? That's exactly a, a parallel. The stealth attacks on homeschooling have been so constant, so devious, that if it hadn't been for spies reporting what Saul was up to, we would have been in deep water. So HSLDA, I think, is critical uh, in helping homeschoolers to respond intelligently. And I think homeschoolers are models, at least in defending that particular right of homeschooling, in initiative and being well-informed. But we need to have that initiative. We need to be well-informed in every area of life. Now, that's not to say that I agree with every stand that HSLDA has taken any more than David would have to agree with every report that a spy uh, brought to him. And I don't agree with all the news organizations uh, that I get my news from. But the point is, we've got to be more informed. Now, we don't call them spy organizations. We call them watchdog organizations, right? And uh, there are many watchdog organizations that the souls of this world would love to close down. Now, thankfully, the Google blackout... Uh, you know, kind of uh, stopped the most recent attempt at shutting down some of these watchdog organizations. But when you have the attitude of Saul pervasively present in D.C., it's just a matter of time before they attempt again to close down good watchdog organizations or sue them out of existence. As long as the Internet is open and it's free, they're not going to be able to stop David's watchdogs from watching. And that's why the, the whole Internet thing is a critical issue. We can't just ignore it. We have got to defend uh, the liberties of the Internet. In a, in a Cato Institute uh, article titled, Voting is Overrated, James Bovard said, Voting is no substitute for the eternal vigilance that every friend of freedom must demonstrate towards government. If your freedom is to survive, Americans must become far better informed of the dangers from Washington, regardless of who wins the presidency. This is not, you know, a lack of patriotism. This is consistent with the whole history of patriotism in America. In fact, all he was doing was he was echoing the words of President Andrew Jackson in his farewell address. Jackson said, 
But you must remember, my fellow citizens, that eternal vigilance by the people is the price of liberty, and that you must pay the price if you wish to secure the blessing. It behooves you, therefore, to be watchful in your states as well as in the federal government. But in saying all of this, I want to caution you not to become perfectionistic. Very easy for us to become perfectionistic and end up not even getting involved in government. I want you to keep in mind it was Saul who pushed David out, not David who refused to work with an imperfect government. David was not a perfectionist. He was willing to serve in the military under Saul. Okay, He was uh, willing to keep things moving in a godly direction through the uh, free market of ideas, and it was precisely his ideas that were having such an influence, and he was becoming so popular that made Saul begin to crack down on, on, on this information. When a government becomes tyrannical, it can no longer afford to allow the free market of ideas to flourish. And that's why Saul wanted to shut down the women in chapter 18 who were singing David's praises. The truth was just too inconvenient. And so what the liberals do is since they can't compete in the free market, since their ideas aren't true, <laughs> uh, they can't compete. What do they do? They have to use force to impose their ideas. This is why Sweden wants to get rid of all private education, have only government education. There has to be a, 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 a monopoly of the dissemination of information. This is why uh, China uh, constantly is, what's it called, where you close things down, uh, monitoring, what's that? Yeah, censoring. They want to censor the, the, the web. They don't want a free market of ideas. And this is why we have to do everything we can, even telling unbelievers that these ideas that are current in Washington are not in their best interest. It's going to hurt the Ziphites just as much as it's going to hurt us. And in the upcoming chapters, David does a brilliant job of winning the Ziphites over and winning the larger group of the Calebites over and other clans within Judah. Uh, he, he does a, a wonderful, wonderful job. He was incrementally advancing Christ's kingdom. He was not the kind of incrementalist that was willing to, okay, I'll give up this principle if I can win this one. That has no integrity. But he was an incrementalist in that every action he did was incrementally advancing uh, the cause uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, forward and constitutionalism forward. He had a long-term vision and he was patiently pursuing it without taking justice into his own hands. So you could really summarize point B, I mean point five, as be informed, don't be a perfectionist, have a long-term vision. Now in conclusion, let me, let me point out that there are three kinds, main kinds of, of people that have been a problem for America just like they were back then. There are the souls who very self-consciously hate the Constitution, have done everything they can to undermine it, hate God's law, do everything they can to throw off the bonds of Christ, Psalm chapter 1. They're pretty easily identified, and uh, they have caused a lot of trouble in America. But there's another group uh, that has caused even more trouble, and it's passive citizens who refuse to get involved, who say, oh, well, somebody's going to do it, George will do it, but they themselves will not write, they themselves will not pray, they themselves will not do anything. And then, of course, there's the third type, there's the activist liberal Ziphites who are blind 
Uh, and eventually, you know, the useful idiots, they get, they get whacked once uh, the communists take over. But you've got those useful idiots who are uh, 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 blindly supporting what's going on. And so let me read uh, from a... I started with Thomas Sowell, I'll end with him. This is another wonderful uh, newspaper piece where he talks about this second problem of people who are always wanting the government to fix something. He titled it, Utopia versus Freedom. He said, Eternal vigilance is the price of freedom. We've heard that many times. What is also the price of freedom is the toleration of imperfections. If everything that is wrong with the world becomes a reason to turn more power over to some political savior, then freedom is going to erode away while we are mindlessly repeating the catchwords of the hour, whether change, universal health care, or social justice. If we can be so easily stampeded by rhetoric that neither the public nor the Congress can be bothered to read, much less analyze, bills, making massive changes in medical care, then do not be surprised when life and death decisions about you or your family are taken out of your hands and out of the hands of your doctor and transferred to bureaucrats in Washington. Let's go back to square one. The universe was not made to our specifications. In other words, you can't always get your way, right? He's saying it's always going to be an imperfect world. Uh, Later on in the essay, he says, ultimately our choice is to give up utopian uh, quests or give up our freedom. This has been recognized for centuries by some, but many others have not yet faced the reality that uh, even today. If you think government should do something about anything that ticks you off or anything you want and don't have, then you have made your choice between utopia and freedom. Back in the 18th century, Edmund Burke said, It is no inconsiderable part of wisdom to know much of an evil ought to be tolerated. And I must bear with infirmities until they fester into crimes. And I would add in there, the Bible alone can define crime. And so, uh, so much of what the government's involved in has no business of being involved in. But he goes on. But today's crusading zealots are not about to tolerate evils or infirmities. If insurance companies are not behaving the way some people think they should, then their answer is to set up a government bureaucracy to either control insurance companies or replace them. If doctors, hospitals, or pharmaceutical companies charge more than some people feel like paying, then the answer is price control. The actual track record of politicians, government bureaucracies, or price control is of no interest to those who think this way. And then after giving more wonderful commentary, he says, If you cannot tolerate imperfections, be prepared to kiss your freedom goodbye. That is just great, great stuff that he wrote there. So let me end by saying we do live in perilous times very similar to the times of David. Uh, There are enemies of America, nobody's denying that, but the the chief enemies are not the Philistines outside of our country who hate our country. Uh, The chief enemies are within our country, people who are throwing off the bonds of Christ, throwing off the Constitution, very deliberately doing so. They are Saul's, and they exist within both parties. And it's important that we neither be passive citizens nor activist Ziphites who constantly say there ought to be a law against that. And they're always wanting more and more laws. Let's stop asking the government to fix all of our problems. And instead, let's ask for limited constitutional government as conceived by our founding fathers. Now, ultimately, 
I believe we're going to be living in a Christian world because the free market of ideas is going to win by God's grace, not by force, by God's grace. And I'm absolutely convinced of that. But until that happens, let's use constant vigilance and take initiative in preventing even more of the liberties that this nation has enjoyed from being eroded. And to God be the glory. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word and the warnings that it gives, even in the uh, small phrases of your scripture. And I pray that we would learn from it. And uh, as Paul said, uh, not be ignorant of Satan's devices, uh, which he is constantly employ, employing and has employed for the last 6,000 years to remove the liberties with which you have set us free. Father, we long for the liberties that uh, this nation was founded upon. Uh, we long for the kind of peace and stability, but we realize it can only happen as you change the citizens of America. There needs to be a grassroots uh, move of this love for your liberty. And I pray that uh, the grace which is prerequisite to that would be uh, 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 put all over America, that there would be a third great awakening greater than anything that we have seen before where people would be able to say, Oh, how love I thy law. It is my meditation all of the day. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.